All right, everyone. Uh, as you can see, I'm not in the studio because I'm still at the Capitol here in Richmond. That's right. But we've got a great interview uh, for you today. This is with uh, Jason Laura Lighton of the Free State Podcast. And we talk about a lot of important issues. But one of the things we really nail down on is uh, kind of being a parent in difficult times. And, and how do you raise your children and protect your children while at the same time giving them the tools that they need in order to adequately navigate this strange new world we find ourselves in. So, Please check it out. Let us know if you like it and definitely go over and check out Free State Podcast. See you later. Today, we're thankful to be joined by Nick Freitas, old friend of ours, but we wanted him to meet all of you because he's both a statesman and a father, has spent several years thinking about economic issues at a higher level, and we wanted to get his insight into the debate around the two-income trap. And Laura's going to tell you a little bit more about what that is. So Nick and I met when you and I were still living in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And um, he was going to run for Senate. And you did run for Senate. And I still want to call you Senator. <laughs> Please don't. So, <laughs> but I remember I was thinking back before we recorded this podcast. I was thinking back to the night that it, we lost, but yeah. I was such a mess. And I came up to you and I was like crying. And I was like, I just want to say this one thing. I'm never going to work for anybody better than you ever. <laughs> and then you did like your next job is with Thomas Massey. <laughs> no, <laughs> Who's significantly no. better than I am. <laughs> no, you were great. That was such yeah. a good learning experience. I feel like campaigns are just, they're wild and crazy, but it's like, running a pencil through a pencil sharpener, like at the end of it, you're just, everything is so much sharper. You're just better as a political activist and, and articulating ideas and all of that. Um, and not just the candidate, but the people working on the campaign too. No, so, and you, and you then, really did a great job. And I'm not just saying that to be nice. I mean, there, there's a reason why we've, we've all kept in touch, you know, Tina and I, and you guys for, gosh, that was 2018. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a reason why we've all kept in touch. So. Yeah, and I got engaged the first day of working on your campaign, and um, and I remember um, you and I and Tina had been talking, and we were like, "Well, if I win, how are you going to get married?" (laughs) 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 The wedding was set for September, so then we ended up getting married in September. And I saw you guys at a Christmas party, and Tina came up to me and said, "So, are you guys trying to have a baby?" (laughs) and (laughs) And Tina was actually the first person, one of the first pers- people I texted when I got the the positive pregnancy test, and she was so excited for us, and it was it was sweet. When I bought your book, so <laughs> yeah. So ever since then, I've just looked up to you guys as um, political activists, people, parents, all of that, and I think a lot of our audience does too. And um, I think. The plan was for me to just start reading. So I'll just start reading from Elizabeth Warren's book, Two Income Trap. She's kind of coined this phrase, um, and we'll just get into it here. Between 1935 and 1980, GDP was going up, and the 90% of America that makes up the middle class, the working class, and the poor got 70% of all income growth. Sure, the rich got richer, but everyone else did better too, thanks to a thousand decisions from investing in scientific and medical research to building an interstate highway system to creating the greatest public university system in history, growing government, America was a country that was getting richer, and it was growing a middle class unlike anything ever seen on this earth. 
As the country got richer and as millions of people began to build some economic security, Americans became more and more confident that we could create opportunities and more hope for each succeeding wave of children. The country worked together to make it happen. But starting in the 1970s and 1980s, the world began to shift beneath our feet. As we described in the two-income trap, two middle-class families flattened and expenses kept rising. Families did their best to adapt as they shifted their spending, quit saving, and plunged into debt. In an effort to stabilize their budgets, millions of mothers poured into the workforce. It says, continues on, but the political landscape was changing even faster than the new economic realities. Government was quickly becoming an object of ridicule, even to the President of the United States. Instead of staking his prestige on making government more accountable and efficient, Ronald Reagan repeated his famous barb, quote, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. After generations of faithfulness to the promise of the Constitution to promote general welfare, progressives love that. At the moment moment when the economic foundations of the middle class began to tremble, our efforts to strengthen each other and offer a helping hand had become the butt of a national joke. And she goes on in this book to talk about how big banks are the enemy and government is the solution to this two-income trap. She doesn't bother to ask why the big banks are the enemy. And she doesn't bother to ask how the government might have had something to do with that, starting with, oh, I don't know, maybe the Federal Reserve or all the various taxes, regulations and government interventions in the economy. This is always one of the major problems that I see with someone like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or AOC is that they will identify a, a, a problem. And every once in a while, it's an actual problem. A lot of times it's, it's made up stuff. But here's an actual problem. We do have more and more Americans that, that find themselves in a situation where they feel like both people need to be working. Otherwise, there's, there's no way they're going to be able to make it. And by make it in America, we generally mean having a house, being able to have a family, having one or two cars. You know, that's what we mean. It's also important to understand that when you, when you look at that through the lens of history or, or even most of the world, that's considered extravagant by world standards. Right, but it is the norm in America, and we should ask ourselves, okay, what led us to that degree of abundance and prosperity? Now, Elizabeth Warren will have you believe that it's because the government intervened in such a way as to create more public universities and government programs, and that's what that's what created it. And and you always need to be careful when people select specific years to look at. She'll go 1935 to 1980. Why'd she pick those years? Why not 1900 to 1990? Why not, why not 1850 to – well, because she's, she's trying to organize it in such a way to where she can blame her political opponents and advocate in favor of her political allies. Because if you actually look at what was going on in 1935 and before that, we were in the midst of the Great Depression. And, and people have this idea that the Great Depression started in 1929 because of you know, uh, you know, unfettered capitalism. No, it didn't. <laughs> I mean, we had a stock market crash in 1929, and within nine months, unemployment was was well below double digits, and the economy was. And then you had the mat, the largest, the single largest government intervention into the economy, in banking regulations, in small business regulations, in taxes and farming, the United States had ever experienced, and we went from, you know, a, a major economic downturn that we were recovering from, um, and then Hoover made it worse, right? A Republican. Hoover made it worse. And then FDR campaigned against everything Hoover was doing and then got into office and doubled down on all of it. 
And, and that's where you see this. Now, all of a sudden, you see these massive government interventions and programs which have created perpetual dependency over time and are not financially sustainable. They don't work. Not to mention that that was also, you know, the, the Great Depression happened after the Federal Reserve, which came into effect, I believe, in 1919. Um, and so now we've been dealing with massive inflationary monetary policy. And, and you know, not to, you know, I, w- I want to spend more time talking about the actual problem and how we fix it. But the, the reason why I mention all these things up front and the reason why I mention things like, you know, the, the New Deal and the Great Society and, and how these things had a lot of really, really adverse effects, like people don't understand. They, they just learned in their high school history books that FDR saved us all from unfettered capitalism through glorious government intervention. FDR all right, was taking small business owners to court because they were charging too little for dry cleaning. FDR took people to court because they they let you pick your chicken when you come in to the store where under FDR that had become illegal. They don't understand that the new deal was, was actually heavily influenced by a little tract written by Benito Mussolini. And, and we know this because Hugh Johnson, one of the main people that was supposed to carry this out for FDR used to carry it around in his pocket with him and give it to people. It was heavily influenced by fascist economic policy Central planning and command and control, right? This is the same FDR that when literally unemployment was in double digits and Americans were going hungry, he was paying farmers to destroy crops and livestock, right? So he's taking taxes from people that can barely afford to pay the taxes in order to pay farmers to destroy livestock at a time when people are hungry. That, that's nowhere in your history books. Right, it's just no. FDR did something called the New Deal, and it saved us. Oh, goody! Okay, that didn't happen. And then you see the same thing with if if you if you track going back to 1900, families within the United States, the the percentage of kids growing up in two parent homes in the United States. I don't care what demographic you were in, it was all over 80 percent of kids grew up in in two parent homes. Then you pass the Great Society, and the whole idea was, and, and a lot of this seems to make sense when you look at it superficially. It was like, oh, we're going to provide additional funding to, you know, mother, you know, single mothers. Okay, well, I, I think, look, I was raised by a single mother. I, I think there's some level where we can appreciate that, and until you realize, okay, but you also incentivized single motherhood, and and there's a lot of other programs like that where the more money you made or if you stayed together as a, as a couple or if you lived in the same house or if you raised your kids together, you weren't eligible for funding. But if you lost that job or you got divorced, well, now you were eligible for the funding. And so we had all these perverse incentives where now we're at a point right now that almost every demographic within the United States, with the exception of Asian Americans, it's over 25 to 30% of kids are growing up in single parent homes. So that that's well over a quarter of kids are growing up in single parent homes with, with either the mother or the father, usually the father, not in the child's life. And then, and then does Elizabeth Warren give any sort of, does she even address this? No, of course not, because it's not about that. It's about, well, we need more government programs. It's never a question of, okay, you identified a problem at some point, you implemented a government program. Did it succeed? Did it work? And when you measure success merely by the number of people that have become dependent on the program, well, then the more people dependent, the more successful your program has gotten. But the arguments to put the program, to implement the program in the first place were never to create more dependency. It was to help people escape it. 
And so that's the only reason why I kind of go on this little diatribe like, no, Elizabeth, yes, you've identified a problem, but you're, you're, you're honestly going to tell me that the real solution or the real, the real source of the problem was in the 1980s when we lowered marginal tax rates and made it easier to conduct business that that's what caused the problems. And if you really want to look at, you know, if you really want to blame big banks, which I think there's actually some decent arguments there. Well, then are you going to explain to me, okay, the the effect that happened during the Carter administration, the Clinton administration, when they literally told banks, you will hand out loans to people that are not financially able to actually pay off those loans. And if you don't, we will investigate you for racism and discrimination. And then all of a sudden, when you had this huge bubble within the housing market and people lost you know, you know, Americans as a whole lost billions upon billions of dollars. You came back and said, oh, we didn't regulate the banks well enough. So you passed Chris Dodd and you passed 27,000 new regulations on banks. And lo and behold, it, it doesn't make things better. In fact, the larger banks end up liking it because they help write the legislation at the expense of smaller banks that are not now not able to compete with them because they can't keep up with the government compliance measures. So I just I really wish Elizabeth Warren at some point would just step back and look and say, you know what, maybe Maybe the solution is, is not more government control over every aspect of our lives or government interference in every aspect of our lives. Because I've seen a lot of societies that have gone down that, that path, the sort of path that Elizabeth Warren seems to favor. And, and what I've noticed is that in a lot of these societies where the government comes in and says, we're going to guarantee you free healthcare, free education, we're going to guarantee you a job, we're going to guarantee you food, we're going to guarantee you clothing, we're going to guarantee you a place to live. Why is it that the people in the countries with governments that guarantee all that will risk life and limb to escape to countries that do not guarantee that? It's because government guarantees don't actually provide or, or suddenly produce the resource. Politicians promising you things doesn't bring those things magically into existence. Free right. people working in voluntary cooperation, using their property, their labor, their talents, the way that they want in order to benefit not only themselves, but the people that they're exchanging with. That's what produces the sort of abundance that we've grown so used to in this country. And I'm not about to trade that so Elizabeth Warren can centrally plan the economy from D.C. Do we have an amen on the laugh track? I know it's either. <laughs> oh, we got a cash register. Hey. <laughs> we'll take it. Oh, there we go. No, I didn't mean to go that long. Sorry. Just, oh, it no. just kills me. No, that's good. Thank um, you. It was it, succinct. Um, who was that? It was uh, like baby Charlie. There was a baby in Europe and he was sick. And the European, the National Health Service wouldn't let him leave the country to seek better health care in the United States. That was, I I don't remember, I think it was 2015 or 2016. And yeah, so the the hand that feeds you, I mean, can also take it away or whatever that phrase is. Keep in mind, Elizabeth Warren is one of these people that also believes the United States government, all right, is rooted in institutional racism designed to create power structures and hierarchies that oppress minority populations. And that's the same institution she wants to give all sorts of grandiose economic power to. Like, how does that make sense? We talk about that all all the time. And I I know that there are some... (laughs) Don't pull this quote out of context. There are some progressives that we know um, that are highly intellectual people, but how can you justify that discrepancy? I I don't get it. What's the whole idea of if only they were if they were in charge then the, the government wouldn't be that way. So oh, okay. the, the problem is right. not the problem is not centralized power. It's the problem that they're not the ones wielding the centralized power. It's like oh well that's I'm, I've never heard that before. <laughs> yeah, it's the reverse of the Milton Friedman line that you want the government 
to do the right thing, even with bad people in place. They're saying it's only okay when you have their people. Yeah. One of the counterfactuals about the whole, well, the government intervened in the economy in the 30s and beyond, and then everything went downhill with Reagan. Um, they don't often mention that the entire industrial base of the world had been destroyed in World War II, and we were the only ones there to provide everything. So it seems like big government or not, we were going to come out ahead, at least for a few decades there. Have you dealt with any of those arguments? Oh, I, no, that's a great point. And it, it's what we actually, we talked about this once on our, on our, um, on making the argument where I, I do think that I think the primary source of, of American economic prowess has been free market economics, private property rights, and, and generally um, a secure environment for which to conduct commerce. I don't think there's any way that um, I don't think it's any way that can be denied that that's, that's the foundation of it. But then there's, there's also circumstances um, that, that can put you in a more favorable position when it comes to things like global trade and, and production. And you're absolutely right. I mean, after world war two, I mean, England had experienced the blitz um, you know, France had been destroyed. Germany had been destroyed. Uh, the Russian industrial capacity um, had taken a hit Um you know, you know the 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 Chinese um, Chinese economy at that time, which which hadn't been strong for for centuries at that point, but it had also been destroyed. Um, the the Korean economy had been destroyed. I mean, really, the United States was the only major industrial, and, and Japan obviously had been destroyed. The United States had really been the only major industrial power that had escaped unscathed from World War II in the sense that we weren't dealing with people bombing our cities. We, we weren't dealing with people bombing our industrial capacity. And so obviously, if, if you're at a point where, where you know, human demand is still high, and especially when, when you talk about rebuilding operations and everything else, and the United States is one of the, the only countries that it can actually produce the goods and services needed around the world, of course it's going to put us in an incredibly economically advantageous position when it comes to competition, but what's what's amazing is you look at the various countries and what they did post World War II. Japan, you know, came screaming back um, after after its defeat in World War II to become an economic juggernaut. Um, you know, Germany the same thing, France the same thing. Now, some people will look at that as well. Isn't that bad for the United States? Well, it, it depends. If if you have a lot of countries working together in cooperation through free trade, then then what you get is competitive advantage. And it's it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? It, it's a good thing that I can go to the store and get products that are far cheaper than they otherwise would have been had they been made somewhere else. It is a good thing that people in foreign countries can buy you know, advanced U.S. products or services that they can't get within their own country because either a lack of resources or a lack of uh, economic uh, capacity. So that, that's what you want. And, and this makes sense to people a lot of times when you take it out of the international stage and you just break it into their local environment. Like, okay, the work that I do, you know, I do work in politics, I do work in, in defense and security, and, and I, I do work on, on social media and stuff like that. Now, I, I like to have a garden, but nobody's dependent on me for food production and Culpepper, right? Nobody, nobody's, so I like being able to go to the person that is really, really good at producing that food, or I like going to the store that's really, really good at marketing and consolidating all these products that I need in one location, so it's amazingly convenient for me. And then the more they're able to sell, the, the more they're able to lower their prices because now they're making their profit off of volume, not just individual items. So 
nobody would say, no, 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 no. The, the only way to, if you really want to provide for your family, the best way to do it is you're responsible for everything that your family really needs from building your own house to growing your own food, to working on your own car, to, you know, you know, producing uh, the clothes for Nobody would say that. We all understand that division of labor and specialization is what makes advanced economies possible. And trade, whether it be at the local level, the state level, the national level, or the international level, is a good thing provided it's taking place voluntarily. Um, you know, unfortunately, we, you know, that isn't the case in, in most global trade. There, there's always some angle that governments are using or politicians are using or businesses are using in order to try to give themselves an advantage at the expense, ultimately, of consumers. Um, but but that trade component is, is really important. So if you're if you're super hungry, like you need it now, and the good news is is that Good Ranchers will deliver it directly to your door. Now, if we want to talk about shady statistics, if we want about shady analysis, did you know that when you go into the grocery store and you see the American flag on that piece of meat, that steak you're about to buy, there's a good chance, there's a very good chance that that beef was raised in a feedlot in a foreign country with God knows what happening, then brought over here. And as long as it went through some of the processes within the United States, they are free to slap that American American flag on it, and you think you are getting a genuinely raised in America steak. You're not, right? You're not. In many cases, you're not. But Good Ranchers does guarantee that. When you buy beef from Good Ranchers, when you buy poultry, when you buy pork, right? When you buy that wild caught seafood, when you're doing, you are getting a, you are getting a cow that was raised in the United States by the ranchers that work in coordination with good ranchers in order to get the finest quality beef sent to your door. And if you sign up right now, if you go to goodranchers.com, you put in promo code Nick, not only are they going to give you the best raised American beef, poultry, or poultry, pork, and um, wild caught seafood delivered to your door, they are also going to give you a pound and a half of free bacon with each order in your subscription for four years, right? You sign up for four years, you get free bacon with your order for four years. Why? This is all in honor of February because it's leap year, which means you better act like pronto, like right away because February is going away. I don't know if you know this, but Fe February is about to end. So you need to jump on this deal right now. Go to goodranchers.com, put in promo code Nick. You're going to get that subscription deal and you're going to get real raised in America meat. And that's what you want. All right, let's go ahead and get back to it. The biggest place I see that debate on the national stage right now is in regards to China. I know Congress is debating the Restrict Act and blocking TikTok right now. But oftentimes people who used to be for free trade, even unilateral free trade, agreed with you along the lines of as long as it's voluntary, great, both sides are better off. But does the fact that China is an authoritarian country or might use infrastructure projects like through Huawei and building cell phone towers to spy or shut down our defense infrastructure, does that add a wrinkle to that analysis? I, I think it does. Well, I don't think it adds a wrinkle to the analysis. I think it adds a, a different factor. So, for instance, if let's say that your businesses are conducting themselves in, in a largely ethical way and, and the businesses in our country are conducting themselves in an ethical way and your government has placed tariffs on U.S. products, so the United States automatically engage in retaliatory tariffs. Well, the, the, the argument here, and this is the example that I, I, like, I like to use, and, and if someone finds out that they're, that they're sick, they have an illness, and they have to take a particular type of medication – in order to kill the illness, right? So probably the best example here is if someone had cancer and they have to take chemotherapy, 
you don't take the chemotherapy because it's good for you. You take the chemotherapy because it's bad for the cancer. Yes. But if you convince yourself that, no, 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 what's good is the chemo. Well, we don't give chemo to healthy people. Right? You don't do tariffs in, in healthy trading relationships. You don't do tariffs in healthy economies. Now, is it possible to threaten a tariff or institute a tariff for the purpose of moving toward freer trade? Yes, you, you can potentially do that. But if you had to choose, it's still better to, even if it's, even if it's largely one-sided, the overall economic benefits of free trade are, are so powerful as to even overwhelm foreign trade to your, your, your businesses. And that can be a very, very difficult concept for people to understand because they'll look at it and be like, but that's not fair. And they're correct. It isn't fair. But insofar as you can't stop what somebody else is going to do, the question is, is do you still benefit more from access to their products? And if the answer is yes, then regardless of the tariff, it's still a better transaction. Now, again, I'm, I, at no point would I ever argue that it's fair or that it's, or that it's good. I would always argue that insofar as you can get to a freer environment, that's what you want. Um, but it, it's important for people to understand the practical economic effects. It doesn't make a lot of sense to hurt yourself in the hopes that, well, it'll also hurt the other person. But there, right. there's a lot of businesses that seek special interest from the government in order to protect themselves from competition. And really what they're doing is they're protecting themselves at the expense of consumers. And, and Elizabeth Warren, again, is the sort of person that will look at government uh, cronyism and say, oh, oh, isn't that horrible? unless she's the one that's deciding how the cronyism takes place, then it's okay because she's a good and noble person and the rest of us are all greedy and evil. I saw one review of her book that was saying she gets the cause and effect wrong. She said a bunch of people had to move to the cities and women started working and there was a keeping up with the Joneses kind of bidding war for housing and childcare, education, etc. But then I saw those graphs, I think it's from AEI that said, oh, look, the commodities and other services that the government heavily subsidizes are the ones that have this these price spikes and then the yeah. fact that everybody used to or more people used to live in rural areas and then move to the city for college and then would move back to start a family that trend seems to have slowed down and people are staying in the cities and maybe not even starting families and so the prices are just responding to that increased localized demand but it's a geographic thing less well, than if, just during the workforce. If Elizabeth Warren had properly diagnosed the problem and therefore her prescription worked, then the then I guess we would be able to look at the economy and we'd be able to say, okay, those things which are the most subsidized or interfered with by government are the things that are the most affordable, accessible, and, and cheapest. Healthcare and education. All right, the two things that everyone complains about as being excessively expensive, not responsive to customers, are, are the two things that are the most heavily regulated or, in fact, controlled by the government. That's not by accident. And, and one of the reasons why you see places like Canada where you have a government-controlled health system where now they're telling veterans to call up wanting help, saying, oh, have you considered just killing yourself? Right? It, it's because when the government provides a service, they don't see you as a customer. They see you as a burden. Right. When it, when a cousin, when a, the, there was a, a friend of mine, she brought this up. She goes, you know, it's interesting when people complain about, you know, um, when people talk about mass immigration, they usually talk about the effect on schools and hospitals. She goes, you'll notice they never talk about the effect on supermarkets because supermarkets are thrilled to have more customers. 
because that's how they see you. When you walk into the store, they see you as a customer. You are going to provide a net benefit to their institution by paying for the goods or services that they provide, whereas government providing goods and services just see you as an additional burden on an already overtaxed system. Um, the VA is a perfect example of this. And so, again, the, the problem is, is that uh, you know, I think Elizabeth Warren will spend a lot of time talking about the, the pain that, that people are feeling and and she and this is this is very very wise of her to do. When you first focus on the pain that people are feeling, all, all of a sudden there's there's an empathetic response there where it's like this person gets what I'm experiencing, and then she jumps right to the solution, and you're like, oh, this person understands what I'm going through, and and they they seem to have a plan, and they seem really smart about it. Nobody wants to hear about how we got there in the first place. Nobody wants to hear about all the different things because that okay, great, that all happened, but I, I how are you going to fix it for me? So Elizabeth Warren is focusing on the pain and her solution. She's not focusing on all the things that led up to the pain in the first place. Well, the problem is, is that if you don't understand those things, you're going to misdiagnose it. You're going to come up with a bad prescription, and then you're going to make things worse. But if you can continue to perpetuate the cycle of, here's a problem, here's my solution. And, and if my solution didn't work, it's because of those people over there. Those people over there are standing in the way because they're greedy and because they're mean and because they don't want you to have these things. They don't understand that this is a basic human right. And so th- that always seems to be the, the progression. It starts with identifying the problem that everyone is, is experiencing or feeling, offering a solution for it. When the solution fails, you don't go back and say, oh, I guess that wasn't a good solution because your political future is tied to the execution of that solution. Right? You've already decided on the course of action. So now you have to find somebody to blame for it. And it just gets progressively worse from there. I think these middle class families, especially with smaller children um, who may still be at home, are especially easily manipulated like that because you know this, you've had three kids, you're just drowning when your kids are that small. And any it's 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 you need immediate relief, no matter what the cost. It's very easy to write off you know, long-term detriment for short-term relief and whatever we have to do to get the baby to sleep through the night so that I can function tomorrow. We'll just, you know, we'll just do it. And I think that carries through to policy. And I see a lot of moms and just young parents in general. They're like, well, we just need paid family leave. I literally don't have the savings to make it through the three months of the newborn stage because I'm living paycheck to paycheck. So what's the solution? So what can you give me? Because I'm desperate right now. And I think that's why policy is so important. And we have to have these like um, laborious debates because it matters and it will affect our children even more than it will affect us. I was going to say, we wanted to talk to you about it because you're in the legislature in Virginia. You have some influence over policy at that level. But as we said, you're also a father. You've dealt with it in your own life. So we wanted to focus now more on the personal side of it, how can you as a free person try to live in a system that people are debating about whether or not it's rigged against you? What steps can you take in your own life to make it through? You know, let me, let me tell a quick story about this When When I got, when Tina and I got married, we were 19 and 20. So I was a private in the army. For those of you keeping score at home, privates in the army don't make a lot of money. <laughs> um, and, and Tina had to move all the way across country and try to find a job. So the, the first year we were married, I think my take-home pay with everything probably landed us just under $20,000. Um, this was in 1999, um, 99, uh, 2000. 
So, you know, obviously we, we, we weren't making a lot of money. Like I, I am very familiar with what it is to go to the store, put your groceries on, on the thing and then be sitting there praying when you hand over your, your debit card going, please God, let there be money on it. And then when it gets even worse, where you're handing over the credit card going, please God, let there be space on it. Right now we're not even talking about money you have. We're talking about money you're going to make in the future, hopefully. So I, right. I, I am very, very familiar with what that is all the way up to the point of us having our power turned off. And I'll, I'll tell you what, there's nothing more as a husband and a father that um, hurt me <laughs> than watching my wife be cold in the winter because I couldn't provide enough to make sure that didn't happen. And, and in that moment, it, it, it's really easy. Um, and, and again, it's not like I was unemployed. I, I was in the military. You know, I, I was, and I was specifically, I was a paratrooper. You know, I was, I was an infantryman. It's not like I wasn't putting in hours. Um, it's not like she wasn't, she wasn't working too. Um, and in that moment, it was amazing because we qualified for a lot of additional assistance that we could have got um, because of, of how little we made. And we'd always kind of decided that we weren't going to do that because we could, we, we could make it happen. We could, we could work out. But we did have a situation where it's like we just needed help. And, and we remember times when family and friends stepped up uh, to be able to help us at that moment. And, and here's the thing that I will tell people. Be very, very skeptical of people telling you that community is when you pay taxes to a government that gets allocated to a government program that politicians then use to you know, help other people. That doesn't build community. I Actually, I think it destroys it. Community is built when you see your neighbor struggling and you walk over there and you help because you know what it is to be in that same position and, and you know what it is to personally care and take on the responsibility to love your neighbor as opposed to delegating it, delegating it out to a government bureaucracy. So we, we, learned, we learned a lot through that experience and, and what it, it taught me a couple of things. One, I never wanted to be in it again. Um, two, it, it so that there was a, a humility component. There was a motivation component. And, and the third thing was, is there was a, there was an empathetic component that came into effect where it's like, not only will we not be in this position again, but we will be in a position where we can help others when they find themselves there. But that's, that's going to happen through me, you know, as, as a man. And I see myself as the, as the primary provider in my, my household, um, me doing what I need to do and making those extra efforts to be able to, um, you know, provide for my family. Uh, well, while at the same time, understanding that your duty as a husband and a father is not simply to provide, but to also provide the, the spiritual well-being, the, the stability, the emotional well-being of your family as well. It's, it's not an either or proposition. And, and by the way, people sometimes act like, well, the reason I can't always be there is because I have to work so hard to provide. I get that to a point. But I guarantee you, if you're taking care of your family, your work will be better too. In the long run, it will be better. I don't believe God calls us to abandon our family to be good providers. I believe that the two work in hand in hand when done when done properly with the proper prioritization. Um, but but developing those skill sets, and it, it was also something about Tina and I also recognizing that okay, we're going to have to change some of our spending habits because it is so easy to whip out a credit card. It is so easy to have immediate gratification. Um, and it is so difficult to to save for something that you can put on the credit card right now and you can find easy ways to justify it. Oh, well, this is going to make it better if we get this right now because, you know, hey, it'll save over here. And it never usually ends up doing it, like with few exceptions, right? So it, it's about discipline. 
and, and this is something I see more and more discussed, which I think is really important. People talk about motivation, motivation. How do you stay motivated? I got news for people. There are going to be points in your life where you are not motivated. Um, it, it could be your, your second or third child screaming at the top of the lungs at two o'clock in the morning. You're not motivated, right? It, it could be having to wake up at 6 a.m. To, to go. You're not motivated, but are you disciplined? And, and I think when you can develop those patterns of discipline, it helps you get, get through those, those times and puts you in a much better position as you get further down the road. But if you never develop them early on, then you're going to find yourselves 10, 15, 20 years down the road making the same sort of financial mistakes, making the same sort of mistakes with respect to work, family balance, and everything else. And you're going to think, well, why am I still in this spot at 35 or 40? It's like, because it doesn't, nothing magically happens at 30. Nothing magically happens at 40. You, you either used your, your, your teens and your 20s to develop skills, which are now yielding fruit at 30s and 40s, or you're not. But, but there's, there's no secret sauce. There's no magical thing that happens at a particular point in your life. It, it's, it's a disciplined approach, um, and, it, and it does pay off. And, it, and it, that, the beauty of it in a country which does provide a certain degree of security and prosperity and, and freedom of action is that you can develop those things. Um, the, the reason why so many people come to the United States, for instance, and are successful, you know, one or two generations, highly successful, is because they had a great deal of discipline and motivation of where they were at, but they couldn't get past the political or social institutions within their country that would refuse to allow them, legally allow them to be successful. And then they got to the United States and the barriers were so low compared to what they were used to that that discipline just, you know, multiplied. And so I, I do think that's a, a large component of it. One of the excuses I hear people say a lot for why they won't have children or won't have children yet is because they don't have themselves together. They don't have something fit. They're not fit enough in some way financially or they haven't completed enough of their career or they don't have a big <laughs> enough house. They don't have the minivan yeah. yet, so they can't have the child yet. But now that we've had two, we realized you are never going to be ready. If you wait until you are ready, you will never have children. If you wait until you have enough money to have children, you will never have them. And yeah. I can already feel our calluses develop in terms of just being, well, kids have done this to us, but it helps us in every single facet of our life. I'm better at... um you know, any work that I do, any any income producing work that I do because I'm a mom, I my project management skills, I say, have become so refined that I'm just better at everything now. And yeah. I can feel myself progressively, like even every month, I'm just getting better at it. And I want to go back to what you said about community, though, too, because this is something that I'm seeing a lot of people talk about right now in mom culture online, but also um, how this applies to the Christian life and its multi-generational living and oh, yes. how, and how you paid family leave is not going to generate a set of arms to hold that baby from three to 6am while mom gets an undisturbed stretch of sleep. Paid family leave can't do that for you. Grandma could, but if, Grandma and grandpa don't have enough money to retire on. Grandma's still at work. So she can't be there for you. So then mom doesn't have anybody. So then mom's alone. And then mom has to go back to work because nobody has any money. And it's um, people are drowning. 
Well, let me let me say one thing is just kind of a side here on the paid family leave. Um, paid family leave is something I see a lot of conservatives even saying, oh, this is this is great because it's encouraging families. You're also telling your employer that it's more expensive to hire young people. It's more expensive. So if I've got two employees, right, and I've got one as a single male and the other is a married female, right? And let's say that they're, let's say the female is slightly more qualified, just, just barely more qualified. Bottom line is that if she's going to have a child within the next one to two years, that represents a significant additional cost to me and my business than if I hire the single male. Hmm. So you've, you've actually put, You've actually put the woman in childbearing years at a competitive disadvantage when seeking jobs as a result of that. And people think, oh, do they really factor that in? Yeah, absolutely, depending on the margins within the business that's being conducted. Um, I'm my own boss, and I factored that in. (laughs) Yeah. I said, my boss didn't even pay me to leave, and I'm my own boss. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and it's to to your point, too, though, but it it doesn't actually address the underlying issue. I've also thought it interesting that the same. Elizabeth Warren will sit there and talk about the double income track. Like, okay, I got an idea. What if we had education savings accounts where the ten to $15,000 per pupil wasn't going to some sort of government system but could actually be allocated to the mother who's actually educating their own child in a co-op and spending all the additional – Oh, they no, absolutely not under no circumstances. But if the mother wants to drop her kids off of a daycare and go to work, Elizabeth Warren is all about providing that as a resource, right? That can be taxpayer subsidized, but not this other thing. So again, I I don't buy the, yeah, I don't buy the overall argument, but you're you're right. I I think the multi-generational living, and this is also something to where when we look at other government programs, it is always easy to look at a particular category and say, here was an elderly person that had no family, that, that had nowhere to go, and they need to be taken care of. And most of us would look at that and say, okay, well, we, we wish there was a family or we wish there was a church or we wish there was a civic organization. But if you're going to say that there's none of that there and, and the government's the last backstop, then okay. But when has any government program stopped with the justification that was used to create the program in the first place. No, by nature, it expands. And the end result is, and the thing is, these things don't happen in a vacuum. What you've told people is you're not responsible for caring for your parents, right? Because you've got to go over and do all these other things. You've got to live the American dream, which is a bigger house, a faster car, more vacations, a boat. You're not responsible. No, no, that's the government's responsible. That's why you pay taxes. Hmm. You know, so... I, I think there's something to be said. One, one, of, the, one of the biggest regrets I, I have about living so far away from my parents, because most of them live on the West, my parents live on the West Coast. We live in Virginia. Um, we don't see them nearly as much as I would like. And when I was growing up, you know, because my, my parents, my, both my parents were involved in my life. I love my, my, my folks, but they got divorced early on. I, I spent so much time with my grandparents growing up. Um, and and it's one of the things that I, it, it kind of hurts me that even though I, I I think we made the decisions that that God laid us to make and I think we were obedient to those, it it still hurts me that my kids have not had the same amount of interaction with their grandparents as a result. And so again, somebody will automatically hear this and say, oh well, what if you don't have the money? Or oh, what if you don't have this? Or oh, what if you have a bad relationship? Okay, I, I acknowledge that there's there's always there's always those considerations, but I'm I'm sorry, you you don't get to tell me that that there isn't like real benefit for the vast majority of people to live in those sort of multi-generational environments where the grandparents get to pour in because it's not only good for you as the parent that needs a break, right? It's not only good for the child that now gets this additional interaction. It's also good for the grandparents. I, I can tell you right now with my oldest child being 20 
and and realizing that we're probably, you know, five, six years away from being grandparents. And Tina, and I get excited thinking about that. That that's a whole new, that's a whole new life that we're a part of. That that's that's, you know, we had some friends come over the other day and they brought their kids who are ranged from like two to eight. And they're running around the property and they're looking at the chickens and the goats and they, they, they want to ride with me, Uncle Nick, on the tractor. And, and just that excitement, the amount of joy that provides and the amount of community that that provides is just incredible. And you're not going to replace it with a government program. You're not going to replace it with a check. And, but people have to decide. They have to see value in it. And, and you're, I, I think the way you worded it, Laura, was right, is that when you're dealing with immediate problems, you want immediate solutions. Um, and, and, I, and I can understand that, and I think to some degree that it's still necessary to meet those. But how are you going to meet it, and what sort of precedent is going to be set, and what sort of long-term habits are going to be set by the way you meet that immediate need? If you're not asking those questions, you are setting yourself up for failure in the long run. And you have to talk about what the ideal is, whether or not that ideal applies to your current lifestyle or not. You can't take it personally as a personal critique because the ideal that we just exchanged in terms of multi-generational living, Jason and I don't have that as we would totally prefer it. His family lives in Texas, but we do talk about it in a way, okay, what changes do we, Elizabeth Warren talks about a thousand decisions were made to give us this reality. So what 1000 decisions and choices do, do we need to make in our marriage and our life to make it such that we can work toward that ideal and, and, and get us maybe not all the way there, but close enough that we can provide it for our kids. And we talk about when we're retired, we're like, wouldn't it be such a blessing if we could, when our kids have kids, I don't know, go over there once a week and do their laundry for them or yeah. uh, cook them dinner on Sunday and Wednesday nights, something like that. Like We're already talking about the ways that we can make the struggles that we're experiencing less so for our kids. And I think those discussions have to start now. And it's not a critique. I, can't, I cannot even tell you. So when when people ask me because we did we did get married young I was I was on a <laughs> I was on a flight once and uh, this this one the lady was sitting next to me she was she was in her twenties I was in my thirties she's she's messing around with the light trying to read something and my light was working hers was I said you want to switch seats I said I'm just reading a book you look like you know you're <laughs> this is important she goes yes thank you I'm reading a job application I'm on a way you know I just got married and I said oh well here switch seats I said by the way I said just so you know. Marriage is awesome. I, I know it's popular to kind of, you know, to, to disparage marriage and popular culture. I just want you to know it, it's, it's great. And she goes, oh, how long have you been married? And at that time I said it was like about 15 years. And she goes, you don't look that much older than me. And she was, I think she said she was like 28 or 29. I was like 32. And, um, or, or 33 or 34, whatever it was. Because I got married at 19. So do the math. <laughs> but <laughs> it's been around 15 years. And she goes, how do you make it work? And I said, do you really want to know, right? And keep in mind, just met this girl. She's looking at me now like, I don't know. Like, do I? She goes, yeah, I, I do. I said, okay, well, I said, we, I said we, we have a biblical view of marriage. And she said, what does that mean? And that actually, that actually shocked me for a moment because it would have been one thing for her to say, oh, I don't like that, or oh, that's really nice. But for, to not even know what it meant. Uh, really showed me that there was a, a, a huge cultural shift. But it, we, we got to talking about that, and we got to talking about what that foundation meant and what the roles and responsibilities were. And 
one of the biggest things that that I always tell people now when they're when they're thinking about getting married is if you're not sitting down and actually discussing the the fundamental questions first what is your worldview what what do you believe about god and truth and reality because if you're not on the same sheet on that i don't care how physically attracted you are to them i don't care how good a time you have with similar you know talents or or you know career objectives it, it's you're not going to make it work so establish that but the very next thing you have to do is actually have discussions about expectations what do you want? What do you expect from the other person? And, and it's amazing to me the number of relationships I've seen fail where you go back and you look at it and they never had that discussion. They just figured that would be something that they'd work out before they got married. And then sometimes when they get married, even if they did it, they don't continue to do it because your expectations and your objectives change over time. And, and provided that they change together, it's fine. It works. It's actually kind of exciting. It's like a new beginning on something that you hadn't previously considered. But if you don't have them, you are going to run into problems where those expectations start to diverge significantly, and it will negatively impact every aspect of your life. And so the fact that you guys are having those discussions about like, you know what, we're experiencing this right now. What do we wish was different? How, how does that affect the way we parent? How will that affect the way that we grandparent? How will that affect the way that we look at where we want to be financially? Um, it's amazing to me the number of people that will make plans for their, their, their life later on based off of the number of vacations they're going to take, but not off of how are you going to interact with your kids and the, and the grandkids and, and what, are, what are various things going to look like? And how do you give your kids the proper space to raise their own family in order to come alongside and be of assistance, not a nuisance? <laughs> And, and again, my in-laws have done an excellent job with that. They really have. I love it when our in-laws come, come around. Um, but so the fact that you're having those discussions and having those discussions about responsibilities and objectives and expectations, that's what actually sets you up for success, not just in the future. It's what sets you up for success now. One of the reasons that we thought you would be good to come on and um, even Tina and the reason we look up to you guys is because – I think you do a good job of living out, you know, the, the Christian life in a lot of ways. But I, before I took my faith walk seriously, I'll just speak from personal experience. I thought everything that you just described was super for someone who wore denim skirt below their knees. That was not for me. That was not cool. That was boring. That was blah, bland. Yeah. Like I want to post sexy bikini pics on my vacation that you're talking about on Facebook. I don't want to live where we live in a tiny town home without a dishwasher so that we can save money so that we can build a house so that we can buy land so that we can do virtuous things for our family and consider all of these things generations down the line because that's boring. Who wants to live like that? But you two as a couple are not in in the world's definition of the word meek um, or I don't, I don't know. However, you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, well, yeah. It, you're you're cool people. Like a, we talk about normies. Normies would look at you and say, you know, well they are a light. Why are they a light? What about the choices that they've made make them happy? And so we want to be the same way. And I think there's a lot of couples who are trying to navigate all of that too. Um, I mean, all of the other struggles that we've just talked about in this recording. And in the last few minutes we have, I just saw the clock. Uh, one of the big questions we wanted to make sure we covered was what made you and Tina choose homeschooling versus other forms? Oh, 
You know, it, it's interesting. Homeschooling was homeschooling was not one of the things that we even considered growing up. I think we had talked about maybe sending our kids to like Christian school because uh, because we had attended we both attended public school and Christian school, and so we we wanted those values um, to be reinforced at school, not contradicted. Um, homeschooling really started out of necessity for us. I was getting out of the military, and we weren't sure if we were going back home to California or if we were going to go out to Virginia. I really wanted to go to Virginia. Um, Tina wasn't so sure. Um, so we didn't know. And it was like, okay, she started homeschooling her oldest daughter, Lily, who's now 20, um, that kindergarten, first grade year, um, again, out of necessity. And there was things we liked about it, things that were terrifying, but that's why we did it. Then we moved out to Virginia. And again, we weren't settled at first. We, we moved to the first place that we could kind of find that was close to the, the job I had gotten. But we always knew we wanted to move out, have some acreage in rural Virginia. And so when that finally became a reality, um, we did put the kids back in public school for one year. Um, and after that, it was like, nope, we're, we're just, no, we're not doing this. We're, whatever, whatever we got to do in order to make this work, we're going to make this work. And again, this is not the, the interesting part about this is this was not some grandiose dream we had. It was not something that we had personally experienced growing up. It was not that we had a lot of friends and network connections that were going to, none of it. It was just, we saw something that we didn't like. We, we knew that our, our child's education and, and development was going to be, it was primarily our responsibility. All right, you can you can delegate authority to other people to help you with things. You can never delegate responsibility for your child, never. Um, and so we said, okay, we're we're going to make the decision to do that. And and it was tough at times, and there was grandiose plans that never took place. There were other things where there was enormous guilt, where you're like, oh my gosh, we're horrible parents. I can't believe you know our, our kid isn't doing this or doing that. Um, you could the do benefit, everything right, and you would still feel that. <laughs> oh yeah, the the. The biggest thing, though, that we've noticed over time, uh, and our kids are 20, 17, and 15 now, is just the, the incredible relationship that we have with our kids, um, that they seem to be very confident in who they are and the things that they want to do and their objectives and their sense of right and wrong and uh, responsibility. And look, that does not mean that they're their rooms are pristine or, you know, far from it <laughs> if they're watching. Um, but it, it's the, the thing is, is that it, you, you know, nobody's capable of achieving perfection. The, the question is, is how do you get, how do you get to the root of the things that matter most that, that are, are critical for someone's development? And I, I think that starts with their, their moral development. And so we, we had a hand in being able to develop that, without the constant, constant interference of peers um, or of other influences that, that might have been overwhelming. Now, that doesn't mean they don't get exposed to their I mean, we, I mean, gosh, I mean, Laura, you saw it in the campaign. Like our kids, we go to you know, theater events. We go to political events. We go to sporting events. We, we go to church events. They're, they're out in the community all the time. They're out inter- engaging and interacting with people all the time. So it's not like they, they weren't exposed. We didn't keep them locked in a dungeon in their house or something. Um, but it, it was, it was more about understanding at different ages when they were going to be mentally, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually equipped to deal with certain challenges and making sure that that was achieved first as, as best we could. And so that was, that was why the decision was made. And I, and I have to tell you, it is, we're actually going to be doing an episode on making the argument here pretty soon on helping parents identify all the different resources out there because homeschooling, what it was 30 years ago versus what it was when we started versus what it is today. 
<laughs> night and day, like absolute night and day. The number of resources that are available and the things that you can do is just incredible. Like we went to a homeschool fair and there was somebody there doing blacksmithing. And Luke and I were both like, well, that looks pretty cool. <laughs> Let's do some blacksmithing. And and that's that's become a that's become a way for us to bond. It's it's something that neither of us looked into initially. Um and then just other things that are available is just really, really cool. And so I, I would encourage people that um there's more resources out there than you ever do not replicate. Do not try to replicate public school and homeschool. Mm. That's one of the biggest things I think stands in the barrier. People are like, how am I supposed to manage seven hours of school a day? Like yeah. schooling and first of all, schooling and education are two different things. Let, let's, let's keep that in mind. Secondly, our public school system was designed off of a Prussian model that was designed to make really good conscripts and factory workers. Okay. Nothing, nothing wrong with being a factory worker. I'm just saying that, you know, it was designed to achieve certain things. Um, if you're wondering why, especially your little boy has a problem sitting still for seven hours a day, it's probably not because there's something seriously wrong with them. It could just be because they're a little boy, right? <laughs> like this is, you know, homeschooling. It's like when the boy gets rambunctious, it's like, go run laps, go feed the chickens, go do something like that. Wear yourself out, come back and let's look at some other things. But when you stop, when you stop seeing education as synonymous with schooling, right? Education is not a place you go to where you sit quietly and listen to people talk at you and hand you activities. Education is, is the multitude of experiences that happen all throughout the day and, and integrating your kids into the, the, the working of the family to where when, it, when it's time to cook dinner, your science project is, is getting, and your math project is getting the ingredients right in order to make dinner and, and a practical application so where they understand that, oh, this is why I'm learning this. This isn't just rote memorization because an authority figure told me this is, this is equipping me to be able to take care of myself and others as I grow up an adult and become a part of a family and a society. And so that's the thing I want to encourage people is that, yes, there's, there's going to be challenges. It can be intimidating at times, but um, don't forget to see the beauty in what happens when you have these kinds of, of options. And when you get to be keenly involved w with your kids as they develop, I, I see people sometimes talk about these massive generational differences between, you know, parents and their kids. And, and yeah, we experience that sometimes too. They'll use a, a turn of phrase or they'll talk about something that I'm like, I don't know what that is. But we also have our own little phrases. We have our own little experiences. Um, you know, my, my daughter growing up, we used to love to watch the BBC adaptations of Jane Austen movies. And, mm -hmm. you know, there would be, there would be like little phrases and stuff like that where it's like, oh my gosh, she's being such a Lydia. Right where my daughter would say that, and I know exactly what it meant, but her friends didn't. Like, what do you mean being a Lydia? Like, oh, you know, she's she's not, you know, you know, not keeping good decorum, not keeping her wits about herself, or what. So you you get to develop these these interactions and these exchanges and these these cultural things that belong to you guys, and it, it's shared experience that's really hard to achieve if if your kids are gone all day. And and I and I don't mean to make anybody feel guilty if they're not in a position where they can do that or they don't feel equipped. But if you're going to hear about all the, the challenges and intimidating components of, of homeschooling your kids, my gosh, at least, mm -hmm. at least avail yourself of all the wonderful things that happens when, when you reclaim that time with your children. So much could be said similar just to motherhood in general or staying home with your kids. And we struggle with this balance too. It's like, well, I could go back to work and make a 
you know, make decent money, but then we're paying for childcare. But I, I say all of that to make the point that when you ap- try to apply, and I'm just going to talk from my perspective, because I think it's fair to admit on this podcast that men and women are different. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. When, you, when you try to apply, I know, how dare she? When you try to apply uh, like a corporate work life to motherhood, it's incompatible because motherhood is is so subject to the seasonal aspects of human nature. I mean, you have a baby and your capacity to go and perform as someone's executive assistant is you, you can't. You can't do that for the next however many months. And I think homeschool and being a stay-at-home mom, those roles fit those ebbs and flows so much. It just makes sense. And I feel that more now that I'm living that out. And what you're talking about, these precious moments, you actually get to enjoy them and you get to capitalize on them. I remember specifically the other day, the we were just having a slow morning. We were having a slow, so people, so many people don't even have a slow morning on a Wednesday. It was just yeah. Wednesday for us. And the toddler was, you know, they're all running around feral, like not dressed yet. And it's 10 a.m. It doesn't matter. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it doesn't matter when, when you are in this, when you have this much control over your day and he's sitting at the table, I'm sitting there eating a snack, the baby's asleep and He's sitting there and it's quiet. It's quiet. <laughs> and he's just toggling back and forth the zipper on a Ziploc bag. And he's just discovering for himself, he's three and a half, how it moves back and forth. And he's studying. It's so much bigger than just opening a Ziploc bag. He's studying the mechanics of how this works. And he's going to later apply that in his life. And I told myself at the time, and then when we were in the car just yesterday, He's sitting there with the Ziploc bag that had food in it. And we were like, don't dump it out. And he goes, he goes, guys, I'm just figuring it out. <laughs> That's what he told us. I'm just figuring it out. But yeah. it's such a small thing, but it's not a small thing. He knows now how to open a Ziploc bag because he sat there and he studied it. And it wasn't something that I you know, forced him. And I sat down and I said, today we are going to learn how to do Ziploc bags. When he was mentally... <laughs> And emotionally ready to do it for himself, he studied how to do the Ziploc bag. And because he wanted to, he was able to better. Yeah. No, it, there, there's something – I've again, you, you'll have a million experiences at work that you'll never remember. And the reason why you don't remember them is because ultimately they're just not important in the big scheme of things. Um, I, I, I can say that of far fewer things that have happened within my, my home and with my family. And you know, people will ask me sometimes, oh, what, is, what does Tina do? And and I'll say, well, first of all, everything. I, yeah. Well, it, it, when people say there, there is a connotation, especially in today's culture, with stay-at-home mom. And the reason why I don't like the term is because it doesn't actually tell anybody what she does. And and so uh, people ask me, "What does Tina do?" I'm like, "Oh, Tina manages. Tina manages the home." She manages the homestead. Like that's what she does. And, and what that means is, is that she, she coordinates schedules and she educates our, our children. And um, when something breaks in the house too, Tina, and, and again, this doesn't have to be true of everybody, but Tina's very, very good at that. She's very, very handy at it. She fixes things. She coordinates things like that's managing our house is not an easy task. It's, it's labor intensive. It's intellectually intensive. It's emotionally intensive. If you're going to do it right. 
And, and that's the part that I don't think people really appreciate is like when we talk about the Proverbs 31 woman, which, you know, everyone will tell you is incredibly intimidating, right? But when, when it's this idea of this, this is a woman that takes, you know, um, she values the, the management, the maintenance, the advancement of her household and her family, and she takes her role in it incredibly seriously to where it's an art, it's a science, it, it's, it's, this is something that she is developing over time and getting better at, and then transferring knowledge over to you know, her, you know, our children on how to effectively do this. And when, when you look about it, when you look at it that way and you understand the complex nature of it, not only does it mean that the, the household runs smoothly um, or, or, or gets progressively better over time, but the things that I have to do outside of the house become significantly easier. I become more effective out of the house because I'm not constantly worrying about what's going on in the house because Tina's got it. Right. If, if all of a sudden something, you know, if, if a pipe breaks or whatever, else, I'm not sitting here thinking, oh, she's going to call me up and I got to leave work to come. She's going to handle that. And, mm-hmm. and I'm going to be able to focus on the things that I have to do so that when I do get home, I do have that time to be able to interact and to talk with her and have time alone with her and have time with our kids and, and to be able to do those things. And when you can appreciate for, for all that is and, and the value added that it brings to the family. Um, all I can say is that once you see it and once you experience it, um, the way you view the world changes. Absolutely. That's beautiful. Yeah. I've had a, this is going to sound like a humble brag, but there's a point (laughs) I've had a senior staff position in Congress in the house of representatives. And the hardest job I've ever done was run a home. But the most important job I've ever had was running the home. And people used to reference it as the home economy. And I think that word is close to big enough to describe what it actually is. It is an economy and you are managing it. And I think it's especially difficult to do all of that in the face of a culture that tells you that why wouldn't you want to chase your corporate career? Why wouldn't you want to climb that ladder instead? But like we talked about before we started recording, I think... I think the pandemic in a lot of ways made people reevaluate what they were doing. They took a look at their cars, they took a look at their house, and they took a look at their family life. And they're like, wait, do we even enjoy our day to day? Or are we just, do we hate five out of seven days of the week of our entire life for 65 years? Yeah. And so I think people are starting to make a lot of changes. I'm going to change gears a little bit. Part of that reevaluation and trying to decide what the balance is between work and education and what to do with our kids now that the economy's opened back up. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up this critique because I'm totally in agreement with you and that's the kind of life that Laura and I are building and we found a lot of fulfillment in it, even the baby steps we've had in the three years we've had kids. The biggest critique of our approach is that there are people that are going to be stuck based on the choices they've made and even the choices their parents made they, for whatever reason, are not going to be able to do that maybe with their kids right now. And so there is going to be this parallel system where the government is running some schools. Is it our responsibility to help those families? And are we doing something wrong by withdrawing from that system and not participating as actively as we otherwise might? There's this debate, just to make it even more specific, there's this debate among a lot of Christian circles that we've seen that if 
if Christian families pull their kids out of public schools, the public schools are going to get worse. And salt yeah. and light, yeah. right? We have a salt right. and light debate. Um, so I, I was I was talking with um, I was talking with some people at my church, and I, I serve on the education committee in the Virginia House of Delegates. And so I was talking about some of the things that are going on within our public school system. I said, "This is not this. I'm not debating with you whether or not it's going on. I'm telling you what's going on. Does that mean it's happening in every single school and every single classroom? No. But is it in the school system in Virginia? Absolutely. And this is these are the various stages that it's at." And uh, they were saying, well, gosh, you know, what do, what do we do with respect to, you know, how we elect or going up to school board meetings and whatnot? And I said, okay, I said, I, I said, I think all of that is important. I think all of that is an obligation that we should look at that because we do want a society that is, is helping kids. And obviously we have, you know, values that we want to see replicated within society. I said, I'm also going to tell you that if you think that you're going to change what has taken decades to create with the next election cycle or because you showed up to a couple of school board meetings, I think you're fooling yourself. And I'm not going to tell you otherwise to, in order to make, because I, I don't want to give you a false illusion about how entrenched this is and what it's going to take to actually change it. And the reason why I want you to be aware is because while I don't want you to stop fighting, um, your, your first obligation is to the child you have that's about to go into this environment. And, and I, want you to, I want you to understand what's happening so you can make whatever you believe are the appropriate decisions. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'll tell you what I think if you want to ask my opinion. But right now I'm just informing you on what's going on. And so should, should we be involved? Sure. I'm not sacrificing my children on the altar of saving a particular system. I'm sorry. I don't understand that. And, and nobody's going to convince me. There, there, nobody's going to convince me that I have a biblical obligation to, to throw my children into there in the hopes that it'll make it better for somebody else's child. Um, it, if, if, that child, if that other child or that other family needs my help, I am happy to provide it. But that is, that is a far cry from me saying, okay, now I'm going to subject my child to the same thing that I think is hurting your child in the hopes that my child's presence will make it better for your child. Right. I, I had a parent use the salt and light argument with me, and I said, look, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not telling you what God has called you to do. I, I know parents that genuinely feel that they've, they've been called to do this, and they have, they have worked very hard and to, to manage that. I respect that. I'm, I am, I am not so arrogant as to believe that I know better than, than, than God with respect to what you've been called to do. But I will say this. I looked at a parent once. I said, okay, I said, I brought up a scenario. I said, so your child is now in a classroom and they're going to be asked about things like pronouns and they're going to be exposed, exposed to various theories that are rooted in things like gender theory or critical race theory or the idea of oppressor versus oppressed or uh, hierarchies of power, which are designed to oppress minority communities. And that because they happen to have the same skin color, they need to be aware of their privilege and all. And so I went through these various things. I said, how would you respond to that? And the parents said, well, I, I, I don't know. I said, great, but you think your nine-year-old does. I said, I don't mean to be rude, but if you as an adult are not prepared to go into that environment and actually provide a response, to provide an answer, what makes you think your nine-year-old is? Your 10-year-old, your 14-year-old, your 17-year-old. And then when they come home and they ask you the question that has been given to them by the authority figures that you sent them to, and you still can't answer it, what, what has happened? What, one of the biggest issues that I, that I try to explain it is as, as gently as possible 
to Christian parents is that a lot of Christian parents have not educated their children or taught them their faith or taught them their values. They've told them their faith. They've told them their values. What they've done is they've set up a system of reward and punishment within their house, all based off of a central authority figure. And that central authority figure is not God. It's not the truth. It's not scripture. It's them as the parent. And that's what they've taught their kid. And then their kid goes off to school or the kid goes off to college and come home and the parent says, I don't understand. They've abandoned everything I've taught them. I'm like, no, they did it. They're applying it. You taught them reward and punishment based off of authority. You're just not the authority figure anymore. And so now when they find themselves in this situation where the college professor says they better believe this, where their social group says you better believe this, they are applying exactly what you taught them. So, You have to go through that process of adequately preparing them. If they leave their house and it's not their faith or their values, then you have no right to expect them to hold on to them. And I don't see how you do that when you're constantly putting them into an institution, an organization that is constantly challenging or contradicting those values or attempting to replace them with a different set of values, which are incompatible with your own. I I think that is a very, very difficult proposition. I'm not saying that there might be some unique circumstances where it might be appropriate, but I I think that, I think if we're going to talk about it, let's at least talk about it for what it is and and the, and the dangers and pitfalls associated with it. Not just what you hope it will be. Oh, that was great. Thank you. I was just going to say amen and that'll preach. (laughs) How do you, so just how do you, in a few words, set up that system where your kids are not looking to you just as an authority figure, but how do they learn about faith and about everything? Oh, gosh. This, so one of my favorite examples of this, because it's embarrassing for me. <laughs> um, so obviously, one, one, of the, one of the things that we started off very early on with, with our kids was we, we talked about the concept of truth um, and how truth is truth is. is kind of there with, with both love and justice or a just outcome, right, of things. That those three things are necessary to each other. Uh, to, to have love without truth or justice is, is to fall into things like lust. Um, uh, to, you know, justice that's not rooted in truth and, and love is not actually activism. It's, or, or it's activism. It's not actually necessarily achieving a just outcome. It's generally helping people, you know, deal with their own angst or, or desires. And without truth, none of this can exist. Because then what are we actually even talking about? What are, what are the terms that we're using? What are they actually defining? So, so you need those things. And those things cannot be um, as a result of your authority. You can, you can emulate them in your life. You can prove to your children that you believe them. But they can't originate. They're not, you're not the source of them. And so as, as we taught the kids about our faith, and, and we, it was very important to us that their faith was not just an emotional conviction, it was also an intellectual conviction. And it wasn't just an intellectual conviction, it was also an emotional conviction. Because when Scripture says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, spirit, and strength, it, it's because that's what is required in relationship. If, if you have a purely emotional relationship with someone, it's probably not another human being, it's probably a pet, right? Mm. I, 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 love, I love our dogs, I don't have a lot of intellectually stimulating conversations with them, right? <laughs> if you, if you have an intellectual conversation with someone or an intellectual conviction with somebody, but you don't actually have an emotional one, well, then there's something lacking in the relationship. So we, we wanted, we wanted both for them because we believe it's commanded of us. All of this to say, the moment of testing generally comes when your kids have recognized that you believe in an objective truth 
and now you have fallen short of it. Hmm. And so I remember, I remember Lily coming up to me and saying, um, Daddy, can I talk to you about something? Yeah, sure. What is it, sweetheart? So she, she came to me respectfully. She asked if she could talk to me about something. But what she wanted to talk about was the fact that I had come home from work. I was tired. Kitchen was a mess. Luke and Allie are down there making the mess. And so I'm like, what are you doing? Oh, my God. Clean this up. Get to your room. You know, I, I, was, I was upset. I was tired. The whole deal. And here's Lily saying, Daddy, the reason why they were in the kitchen is because they were making something for you. Mommy told them that they could. You didn't allow them to explain. She goes, and now they're too scared to tell you why they were doing it. She goes, Daddy, I don't think you handled that right. Oh, now, <laughs> now, again, frustrated dad, right? I'm looking at my, my young teenage daughter. I think she was like 13 at the time. Could have been older than 14. Your heart she's is right. Your feet. <laughs> she's, yeah. She is right, and I am wrong. And, and there's this feeling of guilt that, um, you know, I, I did this to my two younger children and there's this feeling of embarrassment that my young teenage daughter had to bring that correction. And there's a, a sense of pride welling up on me. Like, this is my house. I provide everything like that. You don't get to tell me what you think I've done wrong. Do you understand how much frustration I'm dealing with? And none of that, none of that, even if it was true, how frustrated I was and how hard I work and how much I love them and how much I said, none of it would have changed the fact that she was right and I was wrong according to the objective standard that I told her governed this family. And so I had to take a minute and say, sweetheart, you're right. I was wrong. I am proud of you for bringing this to me and having the courage to tell me what you thought. I'm proud that you did it respectfully and I'll go apologize to, to Luke and Allie. And again, that's a, that's a huge hit. Now people are like, well, that is a huge hit. Should you just admit that you're wrong? Yeah. But in that moment where you have to do it, it sucks. <laughs> Especially, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it stinks. You don't want to have to do it. You don't want to, you don't want to have been wrong. You don't want to give into the fact that you were wrong. But in that moment, and this is something where it's like, oh, thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, that in this moment, because there's been similar moments to that where I didn't act the right way. But in this moment, you know, God gave me the presence of mind to say, Nick, you have an opportunity right now to tell your daughter that this is not about arbitrary rules that you establish as the father, that this is about truth. She's right. You're wrong. What are you going to do about it? Because if you get mad at her at this point, if, if you if you don't respect the fact that not only was she correct, but that she had the courage to be correct to an authority figure, if you don't get it right right now, you've taught her that the rules are arbitrary and that she should just give in to whatever the authority figure says. And that is not how you that is not how you raise somebody that admires truth, love, justice, recognizes that the source of it is God. And that you do have a responsibility to stand up for it, even when it costs you something. And so that's the point that I would tell parents, like when you, when you train it, that one of the most difficult points you will come into contact with is when you're wrong, they bring it up to you and you've got it. You've got to have the presence of mind in that moment. You've got to you know, pray through that and prepare yourself for it to be able to say, you're right. I was wrong. Thank you for having the courage to show me. Thanks for sharing that. That's such a great example. Mm -hmm. The toddler did that to me the other day because... Someone taught him, shut up. 
not us. It actually wasn't us this time. Someone taught him shut up. And I said, you know, that's just an ugly phrase. We don't use ugly phrases in this house. And then I said it in the context of talking to someone else. Don't say that word, mom. And it's very easy for me to say, well, mom's a sinner too. But it doesn't stop there, like what you're talking about. Like, I have to actually not say that anymore if I'm going to hold myself to the same expectations I have of him. So we all need to go to our room for two minutes sometime. (laughs) All of us need a timeout from time to time. And we definitely all need naps from time. I I will never never stop this. I think naps are wasted on the young. (laughs) Hated naps when I was a kid. Love them now. All the time, I'll grab them by the face. The rest of your life, you're just going to want to go to sleep. You're going to be thinking just about the next time that you're going to be able to be horizontal. Just <laughs> give in to it. <laughs> so, well, yeah, thank you for coming on. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Awesome. privilege. 